Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A very good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Rise and Shine Africa, this is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg here in South Africa. We're on the frequency 6145 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa. My name is Asanda Mazaunyani and with me in studio is Onelin Tsinzi, Tabisole Hoku and Fikile Lengwati. This is what's coming up this hour on Africa Rise and Shine. UN agency warns of looming food crisis in South Sudan, Kenyan minister appears in court over corruption charges. In economics, employers urged to pay male and female workers equally. And in sports, injured South African Springbok captain said to return next month. All that's coming up and more, but let's get the news first. Here's Onelen Zinzi. An explosion at a petrol station in Ghana's capital and flooding caused by torrential rains has killed around 150 people. President John Mahama says this marks the worst disaster to strike the West African country in more than a decade since more than 120 people died in May 2001 in a stampede at the National Stadium during a football match. Around 96 of the people had sought shelter from floods overnight at the state-owned gas station. A few lake at the station caused the accident that also destroyed nearby buildings. Dramani has announced three days of national mourning starting on Monday. Five men have been charged in connection with an attack by Somali Islamist gunmen on Garissa University in northeast Kenya that killed 148 students. The assault on Garissa University on April 2nd, in which gunmen from Somalia's Al-Shabaab group stormed in and sought to kill Christian students, has piled pressure on President Uhuru Kenyatta to do more to secure the border and other regions. Four men from Kenya and one from Tanzania were charged in court for conspiring to commit a terrorist act at Garissa University College and other related offences. They are the first people to face formal charges over the attacks. Burundi's Electoral Commission says a meeting of stakeholders is to be held next week to determine a new date for the country's parliamentary elections. They had been scheduled for today but have now been postponed following the unrest in Burundi over President Biengorunziza's bid for a third term. There's been pressure on him to postpone both the parliamentary and presidential elections. The presidential vote is still set for the 26th of this month. Electoral Commission Chair Pierre Clave Ndaikarie explains next week's meeting. The summit said that for us, for Burundi to have peaceful polls, there's a number of conditions since that need to be met. And those conditions can only be met through the dialogue. But those conditions uh, do not include the fact whether we have the elections or not, or the, fa- the fact whether the president runs or does not run. That's no longer an issue. 
Three senior officials from Nigeria's central bank and two others from a commercial bank have been remanded in custody after appearing in court charged with currency fraud. The five were charged with defrauding the Apex Bank and two other banks. They are among 22 bankers who were arrested across the country after failing to carry out instructions to destroy old banknotes totaling billions of naira. The bank says this systematic scheme has been running for several years. More from Ahazia Suleiman, News Director at the Voice of Nigeria. The thing started, the central bank, which is the Apex Bank in Nigeria, like the Reserve Bank in South Africa, are reported to the Economic and Financial Crimes Commission of Nigeria on November 3, 2014, complaining, alleging that um, this staff purportedly connived to recyclate into public deceased and mutilated currencies that they were asked to destroy by substituting those currencies with newspaper cuttings in the size of the Naira note. So they were caught from office, so they were arrested and um, taken to court where the hearing started on Tuesday. And finally, a group of Zimbabwean independent candidates aligned to expel Zimbabwean Vice President Joyce Mujuru and those aligned to the MDC participating in upcoming parliamentary by-elections have formed a coalition to take President Robert Mugabe's ZANU-PF party heads on. Zimbabwe will on June 10th hold 17 parliamentary by-elections. This follows the expulsion of 21 opposition movement for democratic change MPs who had crossed the floor to form the breakaway MDC. DC Renewal Team. Mojuru was fired together with 16 ministers and several others, top ZANU-PF officials last year, over allegations of plotting to kill Mugabe. The group has since launched the People's First Movement, also known as the original ZANU-PF. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onele. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. If you've just joined us, good morning. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. My name is Asanda Matsawanyane, your host for the show. Days after the World Food Programme warned that South Sudan was facing the worst food insecurity in the country's history, the UN Security Council has expressed its grave concern at the unfolding humanitarian crisis in that country. This comes after the South Sudanese government expelled the UN's deputy special representative to the country over claims he was undermining their sovereignty. The council slammed the decision as showing a disregard for the plight of the South Sudanese people and for the essential role the international community particularly the United Nations, is playing to alleviate the country's plight. Showing Bryce Peace reports. While the escalating fighting is making a bad situation worse, humanitarian agencies are warning that a lack of funds and shrinking access will compromise the ability to meet escalating needs. Adrian Edwards is the spokesperson for the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Refugees are citing the upsurge in fighting but also growing food insecurity as the main reasons for fleeing. It's estimated that more than 3.8 million people, representing a third of South Sudan's 11 million population, do not have sufficient food. UNHCR offices in Sudan, Ethiopia and Uganda have all reported sharp increases in arrivals during May. Last week alone we saw 6,000 
uh, South Sudanese arriving in Sudan's White Nile and South Kordofan states. Since the war broke out in December 2013, almost 600,000 South Sudanese have fled the country, while the UN's refugee response plan remains hugely underfunded. With the number of South Sudanese fleeing the country increasing rapidly, we are extremely concerned that the South, Sudanese regional ref- South Sudan Regional Refugee Response Plan, uh, which is the plan that covers the refugee programs in neighboring countries, uh, which is run by UNHCR and 39 other partners, is still only 10% funded. This leaves many life-saving activities, including provision of clean water, sanitation, health services, food and shelter, severely underfunded. Last May, the Secretary-General appointed a high-level panel that includes former Cabinet Minister Trevor Manuel to make recommendations on the challenges of humanitarian financing as crises around the world remain notoriously underfunded. Edwards again. We have, since 2013, seen a number of major displacements. We're in another tragic wave, which once again is uh, uh, having its greatest impact on civilians. Um, There are pressures growing, of course, on surrounding states once again as this happens. Uh, We have two million uh, people who are either internally displaced or refugees. You have four million, almost four million people uh, who are without sufficient food. Uh, So the pressures uh, on the population, on civilians in South Sudan uh, and surrounding countries are really uh, cannot be overstated. The Security Council statement slams the decision to expel the UN's number two in the country, Toby Lanza, condemns the repeated violations of the cessation of hostilities agreement, while underscoring that there is no military solution to the crisis, and, as they've done on several occasions, threaten to impose sanctions against those who undermine peace. I'm Sherwin Bricebees in New York. Kenya's Transport Minister Michael Kamaue has appeared in a Nairobi court on corruption charges involving more than 366,000 U.S. dollars. Kamau became the first cabinet minister to face criminal charges in President Uhuru Kenyatta's government. James Shimanyula has more from Nairobi. Kenyan cabinet minister Michael Kamau appeared before a Nairobi magistrate Lawrence Mogambi and denied corruption charges derived from the tenders his Ministry of Transport awarded to companies that redesigned roads in western Kenya between 2007 and 2008. At the time, Minister Kamau was permanent secretary in the Ministry of Transport before being appointed cabinet minister shortly after President Uhuru Kenyatta became Kenya's president in April 2013. Kamau pleaded not guilty to five charges of corruption. His case will come up for mention on the 16th of this month with a view to fixing a hearing date. Kamau's case attracted Kenyans of all walks of life who thronged the court. Also in court was one of Kenya's renowned lawyers and activists, Alexander Musioka, who described the cabinet minister Michael Kamau's appearance in court as historic. Is the first cabinet secretary to be charged over corruption. So in this matter, the Jubilee government, under the stewardship of President Kenyatta, is seen to be working. Now that he was in the court this morning, and having made frantic efforts to stop his prosecution, they have proved 
uh, futile. Do you think uh, this paves the way or creates room for more ministers to be charged in a court? Yes, this has paved the way for more cabinet secretaries who are implicated in various monumental scams to be charged in court. As it has been uh, in the media, that uh, cabinet secretary for lands, Charity Ngilo, is not yet out of the woods. She is being investigated over other matters. So are the other ministers implicated in graft, Kazungu Kambi and uh, the others who have been named. The other ministers that have been linked to corruption are four. So far, they are being investigated for large-scale corruption. Nathaniel Jefo was one of hundreds of Kenyans that turned out in an Nairobi court in large numbers to hear charges read out to Cabinet Minister Michael Kamau. I think these are clear indications that the government and the ethics and anti-corruption are now serious on the issue of uh, tackling corruption. If you can see now our cabinet secretary who has been in government recently being brought to court, then I think there is some seriousness in one way or the other, unless there is politics. But I believe the government is serious, the ethics and anti-corruption is serious. Now the ball is actually on the magistrates and the anti-corruption court. Minister Michael Kamau is one of five ministers suspended from office in March this year by President Kenyatta to pave the way for investigations into allegations made against them by the country's independent ethics and anti-corruption commission. As Minister Michael Kamau waits for his trial, dozens of top Kenyan politicians and civil servants have been named in a damning corruption probe by the country's anti-corruption agency. Altogether, 175 people were named in a report submitted to Parliament by the agency. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. If you've just joined us, good morning. I'm Asanda Matsaunyani. The decision by the Botswana National Newspaper, the Botswana Gazette, to file an urgent notice to sue the Botswana government over unlawful arrests of their journalists and editor has been widely welcomed. The newspaper has also written to the Attorney General demanding a public apology from the government. This follows the arrest of three journalists and their editor last month. The publication had carried an article which exposed senior government officials allegedly involved in dubious lucrative deals. Lucas Mutibedi reports. The Botswana Gazette journalist Lawrence Serete, Innocence Latwa, together with the publication's managing director, Sheikh Olsen, have issued a class lawsuit against Botswana government over what they say was an unlawful arrest. The publication's legal representative has also issued a notice demanding a public apology from the government. They were arrested last month over an article they carried exposing a senior government official allegedly in dubious 150 million pula deal. The publication's managing director, Sheikh Olsen, says not only they were arrested unlawfully, but they were also denied constitutional rights of a legal representation when they were questioned at the station. We are confirming that uh, as the Botswana Gazette, um, journalist Lawrence Reza and Innocent Salatwe, as well as me, the managing editor of the Botswana Gazette, are suing the, the Directorate on Corruption and Economic Crime over unlawful arrest and detention. Their arrests triggered widespread condemnation from different sections of the country, including opposition parties. Some went on to call for abolishment of constitutional laws like Media Practitioners Act and Sedition Act, 
which all these journalists were arrested under. The Botswana Editors Forum has welcomed the move by the newspaper to legally challenge the government. The forum's chairperson, Spencer Mohabi. We are well aware that uh, the three journalists who were arrested, the Botswana Gazette journalists, they have now taken the state to court over what they say was unlawful arrest. We, we wholly endorse uh, their decision. We are worried about the frequency with which the journalists in this country are always nowadays being arrested. In a wake of criticism of laws used to arrest these two reporters, the Botswana government reacted strongly to condemn the allegations that they are deliberately limiting media freedom. Government spokesperson Jeff Ramsey did confirm that the laws will be abolished. The Media Practitioners Act, which we're going to replace, has never been operationalized. The private press in this country is absolutely unregulated in terms of professional ethics. Meanwhile, local media have carried out speculation that a legal representative of the newspaper will be formally charged next week for contravening justice when he prevented the police to raid and arrest the journalist last month. I'm Lucas Mutibedi, reporting in Mahikeng in the Northwest. A world that remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good morning and thank you for listening. I'm Asanda Mazzaunyani. South African President Jacob Zuma says Africa will not tolerate strong men that want to extend their stay in power. He was delivering his official address at the 25th session of the World Economic Forum underway in Cape Town. The three-day meeting has seen a record number of participants, including captains of industry and young people. Debo Mukobo has more. The future of the African continent is young. More than 50% of the population will soon be under 35. Politicians, business leaders and young people under young global leaders debated the future of the continent. Founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, Professor Klaus Schwab, says since the first staging of World Economic Forum on Africa 25 years ago, Africa has made progress in development. It is the fact that we have contributed through action to the development of this great continent. I just want to mention some of the initiatives which had an impact. Initiatives where we were catalyzer or supporters. For example, the Global Alliance for Vaccination and Immunization of Children, which was born thanks to the Gates Foundation in Davos. The Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria, which also had its origin in Davos. The initiative Grow Africa which is contributing so much to the agricultural development. And in his address, President Zuma says the forum has contributed in the continent's quest for growth. Africa, at one point, 
was subjugated, colonized. It fought to liberate itself politically. But we all agree that as one of our great leaders in the continent, Kwame Nkrumah said that political freedom is not enough without economic freedom. So the issues that we deal with these days is how to shape ourselves economically. And therefore, to participate in the World Economic Forum gives us that platform which we believe is very important. And we believe that our interaction will help us to arrive there. And a prosperous Africa needs system that promotes good governance. We've got special structures that investigate corruption, particularly in government. There is more focus that the taxpayers' money cannot be taken by other people. There is no issue that is left. And it does not matter whether you are small or you're big. If there is a problem... We have structures to look at it, structures to investigate. Even the president here is investigated thoroughly if there's anything wrong. That's how open the system is. Conflicts that hamper Africa's growth potential also came under sharp focus. This amid a violent political crisis in Burundi where President Pierre Nkurunziza wants to stand for a third term. Zuma says leaders will not be allowed to amend their constitution to extend their stay in office. People are saying enough to strong men. We are ready to fight that. What they're saying, you can no longer continue like the old way. If you take Burundi, what has caused a problem? The president felt he hasn't done his two terms, and people believe he has done it. That has caused a problem. All you can do is to engage our colleagues, as we've been doing, and say if we have agreed that there should be two terms, respect it when it comes, respect to our own constitution, so that we don't cause problems. This business of us agreeing to serve two terms, and then only to realize that Ten years is too short. It's a problem. <laughs> and Ghanaian Vice President Kwesia Misa Arthur says Africa cannot afford to repeat past mistakes and insists they need to leverage on their successes to build a peaceful and prosperous continent. We have hope because in the last 25 years we have made the mistakes. Now we, we learn from those mistakes and we go forward in hope. We have in the last 25 years political developments that also have led to convergence. So how do we proceed from the stable political system that we have from a judiciary that is increasingly independent? So how do we leverage on these positives for the future? That is what I see as the progress that we can make. Delegates will also discuss the impact of Ebola and how similar outbreaks can be prevented. I am Debu Mokobo for SAPC in Cape Town. The progress that women have made in the economy isn't very impressive. That's the sentiment from a panel discussion at the World Economic Forum on Africa in Cape Town. The panel called Closing the Economic Equality Gap has discussed issues such as equal pay for equal work, increasing the number of women in boardrooms, updating economic policies and social institutions. Zaylene Merrington reports. Panelist, businesswoman and political activist Grasa Marshall is known for her frank views. I don't think there is much progress in uh, mm. economic advancement of women. There's the formal and that there's informal. The informal, which is made up mostly by women, it's just a sector in which there's a survival. And the formal sector, it's precisely where I think I wouldn't call progress. You have a few faces, very few faces in the boardroom, very token. UN Women Executive Director and South Africa's former Deputy President Pumzile Mlambunguka agrees with Grasa Marshall. The fact that there are countries, and in many countries, having a child is a burden. 
because you lose part of your income, you lose part of, uh, uh, of your promotion uh, at work. It's almost like women get punished for giving birth to the next generation. And then they get a motherhood penalty. There has been some progress, but it's just not enough. Even the executive officer of Safaricom in Kenya, Bob Collimo, admits that workplace equality is a challenge. Half of Collimo's staff and 40% of his management are women. The mixed-gendered panel and audience have lauded him for paying both his male and female staff members exactly the same salaries and for having childcare and other facilities at his workplace. But Collimo says this is an indication of the long road ahead. But the result of that is we make much better decisions. And because we've done some of the things like we've provided um, childcare facilities in mm. the office, and when we ask ourselves why weren't women moving up to, to, to the, the C-suite, it's because they have the double shift, right? Mm. And we said let's get rid of, or at least let's relieve that problem. The result is that I get, this is clearly evidence here, is that I get the smartest women in Nairobi working for my company. Because if I'm paying the same salary as the guy next door, I will provide things like um, breastfeeding and breast-expressing facilities. Because, you know, fundamentally, I believe that it's, it's just wrong to ask a woman to be expressing milk in a toilet. Not in the 21st century, mm. and certainly not in my country. The result is that... Well, well, thank you, but I mean, the, the fact that I'm getting applause for that <laughs> is a statement in itself. It shouldn't be. I mean, it just, mm-hmm. just doesn't make any sense. But Rwanda's finance minister, Clever Gatete, warns against chasing only numbers. Rwanda is a leader on the continent when it comes to gender equality. Gatete says gender equality has been legislated and various institutions have been established to promote it. He cautions that it's important to be able to measure what the numbers mean. We have a checklist so that we can measure ourselves against certain standards. Where are we? What's the baseline? Where do we stand? What's our target? How do we reach there? What kind of policies do we need to change so that we can reach where we want to reach? And this would inform the government in terms of policies. Because otherwise we'd be talking about numbers, but numbers is not just the overall solution. The panel has agreed that gender equality should be legislated in all African countries and that credible institutions should be established to ensure its implementation. But they've also acknowledged that gender equality across the economy is a complex, long-term battle. Amzeline Merrington in Cape Town. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Africa Rise and Shine is the name of the show you tuned into. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We say good morning to you and thank you for joining us if you've just done that. My name is Asanda Matsaunyani. Africa is still facing the same challenges, hindering competitiveness as 30 years ago. This is according to the Africa Competitiveness Report 2015, released at the World Economic Forum in Africa, underway in Cape Town. While parts of the continent are experiencing an economic boom, productivity in key sectors that drive the economy Remains stagnant. Matlata Gellens reports. Africa's overall competitiveness has remained stagnant despite 15 years of strong growth. The competitiveness report reads with a sense of deja vu. Weak institutions, a persistent infrastructure deficit, and low levels in health and education remain the barriers to competitiveness. 
The majority of African countries are among the least competitive in the world and stagnation is in key sectors like agriculture that account for most jobs on the continent. Lead author is WF's Caroline Garvin. Well, what we have been seeing over the past decades a declining agriculture sector both in terms of value added and employment, although it provides income still for a very significant part of the population. But on the other hand, we are seeing a very rapidly rising services sector, all the while manufacturing has been remaining minimal. Mauritius is Africa's most competitive economy. It ranks 39th out of 144 world economies. Surprisingly, it is many resource-rich economies that export oil and minerals like Angola and Guinea that are at the bottom of the list. South Africa is ranked second on the continent with education in need of special focus. When we look at uh, South Africa, we are seeing it's ranking 56th in the ranking. It does, um, as many other African economies, relatively well in the goods market, um, also in the financial market and innovation, but it really critically um, needs to improve its education. So education is, I think, the, the key message of the report is education across all African economies needs to improve. Africa's economic mainstay, the agricultural sector, is in desperate need of investment in information, communication technology and infrastructure that includes roads and irrigation systems to make the industry more productive and accessible, especially for smallholder farmers. Only one-fifth of Africans use the Internet compared to 30% in Southeast Asia and 40% in Latin America and the Caribbean. Jennifer Moyo is with the African Development Bank. With information communication technology, this has indeed the potential to revolutionize um, the agriculture sector. ICT can be used across the production cycle, right from pre-cultivation to inform choices about crop and land selection. It can also be used during uh, crop cultivation by providing information on the right amount of fertilizer and the type of fertilizer to be used, as well as providing information on crop health. It can be used during the post-harvest period to be able to communicate prices to farmers and be able to enhance um, price discovery. It is the service sector such as transport, banking and hospitality that is on the rise. This is challenging long-held views that the path out of poverty for the continent was increasing agricultural productivity followed by manufacturing. Annabel Gonzalez explains. Employment of services is growing much faster than the services share of GDP. Growth in this area is, low, uh, is in low productivity sectors such as personal and government services and not in high productivity ones such as business services or finance. As a result, the services sector is becoming increasingly relevant in the development agenda across Africa. The African Union has an ambitious infrastructure development plan to connect the continent in the hope that this will bolster efforts to achieve competitiveness. in Cape Town. 7.30 Central African time here on Africa Rise and Shine. Let's get news headlines with Onelin Zinzi.
An explosion at a petrol station in Ghana's capital, Accra, kills 150 people. Five men have been charged in connection with an attack by Somali Islamist gunmen in Gorisa University in northeast Kenya that killed 148 students. And a group of Zimbabwean independent candidates aligned to expel Zimbabwean Vice President Joyce Mujuru and the MDC participating in upcoming parliamentary by-elections have formed a coalition to take President Robert Mugabe's ZANU-PF party heads on. Channel Africa News. The likelihood of the deadly Ebola virus re-emerging in West Africa has been put at around 50% by the United Nations. Over 11,000 people have died in an an outbreak of the disease, mainly in Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone. Liberia has been declared Ebola-free and cases have been declining in the two other worst-affected countries. But Peter Graff, the UN Secretary-General Special Representative for the UN Mission for Ebola Emergency Response, Yonmir, is warning against complacency. We've managed to nip it in the bud in Mali. The World Health Organization has declared Liberia Ebola-free on the 9th of May. And the overall trajectory for Sierra Leone and Guinea is still positive and downward, but with bumps on the road, so there's still a lot of work to be done. The rainy season is about to arrive in West Africa. How is that going to affect the situation? The rainy season sort of has arrived already, and it does affect operations in, 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 in terms of logistics. It makes moving people and goods around more difficult. Hence the fact uh, that uh, the World Food Programme has worked on pre-positioning supplies. And also, it, although it doesn't seem to have a direct effect on Ebola itself, uh, it creates problems because it will bring other diseases like malaria that uh, often show similar symptoms to Ebola. So in that sense, it makes it more complicated because for the time being, people showing those symptoms have to be dealt with as if they are potentially Ebola patients, therefore have to be tested. So we will see the number of people to be tested to go up quite dramatically over the next few weeks. Is Ebola always going to be in West Africa? How real is the danger of it re-emerging at a later stage? That danger is real. Ebola is is a disease that can survive in an animal population. As long as there are animals in the forest that are carriers of the disease, there will be Ebola in the region and therefore it can come back to the human population. In fact, we are planning against a, let's say, 50-50 chance of Ebola coming back over the next 12 to 18 months, as it has done in in DRC and and as it has done in Uganda. So you really have to guard against complacency. Absolutely. The next phase in the response has to be is helping the countries put in place a solid, robust, community-based surveillance system. What are the big lessons that are coming out of this crisis for the affected nations, but also for the wider international community? A problem of this magnitude, nobody can deal with it alone. No shame in calling on your neighbours and the larger international community to come and help you. Secondly, national leadership incredibly important and I think that was one of the main drivers of success in Liberia. Thirdly, don't forget both your primary beneficiary but also your biggest ally, the communities. In all countries, and I know Liberia better than the other two, it's communities that self-organized, that didn't wait for 
the national government that didn't wait for the international responders and started doing the things, often very good things, to deal with this. You've spent quite a bit of time in the region. What's the general mood of the, the population like? It varies from country to country. I would say that Liberia, happy to be out of the worst, but still very concerned that it might and all will come back. People are still vigilant. People are still washing hands. Sierra Leone and Guinea, a sense of frustration, as we saw in Liberia a few months ago, a sense of frustration, a sense of why is all our effort not bearing fruit? And it will still take some time. So the next, what we need to do now is to transfer that frustration back into a positive energy to go that last mile. That's Peter Graf, the UN Secretary-General's Special Representative for the UN Mission for Ebola Emergency Response. He was speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Dickinson. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine here on Channel Africa. Good morning to you if you've just joined us. I'm Asanda Mazzaunyani. Now, Agenda 2063, the Africa we want, is the program of action of the African Union for the next 50 years. Agenda 2063 supports, for instance, what is called the Demographic Dividend Program or Dividend Program, and it plans to unleash the potential of youth and women. The UN Population Fund, UNFPA, is one of a growing number of actors that has joined the Democrat the demographic dividend agenda by supporting governments, institutions and policymakers to conduct assessments and analytical studies on the potential of countries and regions to harness the demographic dividend and identify critical policy actions that will enable them to do so. For more on this, we are joined on the line from Cape Town by the Executive Director of the UNFPA, Dr. Babatunde Osotimehin, who is currently here in South Africa attending the World Economic Forum on Africa under the theme Then and Now, Reimagining Africa's Future. Good morning to you, Dr. Os- uh, Timahin. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for asking me. First of all, why is the World Economic Forum still relevant for Africa? The World, the world Economic Forum uh, Africa uh, focuses on the positive aspects of African development, and as you know, uh, six of six or seven of the fastest growing economies in the world are in this continent. And focusing on these issues, and also talking to the other uh, African countries, and looking at the private sector uh, involvement on development uh, in Africa, uh, is something which I think is important. And that's why. The World Economic Forum comes to Africa every year to have these meetings. So there will be a meeting of minds between uh, governments, the private sector, and civil society. And briefly tell us about the demographic dividend concept. What is it? The demographic dividend concept is a simple concept of how a, the, the, a country or a nation would be able to uh, reap a dividend if they invest in the young people of the country. And in the circumstance, what it implies is that if a country invests in the education and the health and the job creation and provides uh, good governance, what will happen is that you would have more 
people in the age group of between 15 and 24 and more who would then be in the workplace and they would earn uh, you know money which would they would save and they would also increase uh, the country's uh, uh, gross domestic product and that implies that there will be more money and prosperity in that country because we've invested in our young people. But it is not automatic because what what we're talking about is that over a period of time, most countries will go through what we call a transition in terms of its demography where there will be less uh, people who depend on uh, the, the, the larger population. So fewer children, more older people. And so when you have that, if you have not invested in your children, if you have not invested in your young people, you are not going to have the dividend. But if you have invested in, a, in, in your children and young people, you will then have that dividend. So that it is, it is, it is a time-bound thing. Education must be robust. Health must be robust. You must also provide an ambience where there will be good governance and you must create jobs for, for it to happen. You participated in a session on the demographic dividend yesterday. What was the main outcome of that? The main outcome of it, I think, was the realization and the understanding that governments must make the difficult choices uh, to be able to invest more in the education of the young people of this continent. And, and when we say more, we're talking about robust investments in the quality of education, robust investments in vocational training, in entrepreneurship training, investments in teacher education, supervision, so that you will get the quality you are looking for. We also did understand that you have to invest also in comprehensive sexuality education so that young people as well as women and girls will make choices different from what we have today. Because if you don't have fertility decline in Africa, you will not get the demographic dividend. And you also must provide for them access to health and nutrition and family planning products for that to happen. And the, the third is that they have to have a partnership between government and private sector for you to be able to make uh, headway. Because the private sector provides uh, what government does not provide, you know, niftiness, you know, a business uh, uh, model which, which enables efficiency and utilization of resources better. And, and also, in any case, uh, both government and private sector will have to also put resources together to enable uh, small and medium enterprises to sprout so that startups can come. And when startups come and they thrive, you will have uh, uh, jobs that are created that will enable a country to grow. Has there been any headway in those partnerships between government and the private sector? In some parts of Africa, yes, we are beginning to see this. 
uh, and and I and some countries have actually put together, you know, the demographic dividend uh, 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 partnerships that that, that uh, basically has identified where they should work together and how this will happen. Now, I also must warn that it's not overnight, something that has to happen over a period of time. But, you know, we're so confident about it. Today, Africa has $600 billion in its central bank combined, sub-Saharan Africa. Now, now we think that if the demographic dividend is done and done very well, and you invest in young people and create the enabling environment for them to participate in the economies of Africa, we can actually make $500 billion a year for 30 years. That is substantial. Mm. And finally, uh, Doctor, how best can young people fulfill their potential? Because there must be a role that obviously they can play uh, over and above the partnerships that are being formed. How best can they fulfill their role? Young people, we believe that you, for this to happen, private sector uh, and uh, governments and civil society must involve young people because uh, it's about them. And we should not do anything about them without them. Uh, they should be part of planning, implementation, the governance structures that will take this forth. Because uh, there would have to be public policies. There will have to be all sorts of mechanisms. And young people have to participate in that for that to, to go forward. Now, let me add something which I think... Uh, I've not made, uh, and I think it's important. Mm. We also must ensure that participation of girls and women in this uh, is at parity with boys and men. Uh, so that girls must go to school, they must stay in school. Uh, the, the phenomenon of early marriage, early and forced marriage, which happens in many countries in Africa, has to stop. We also must uh, make sure that we reduce teen pregnancies, which denies young girls the opportunity to reach their full potential. And we must ensure that we create the same opportunities for boys and girls and for men and women so that, you know, both in public and private sector and in the startups, they have the same opportunities. All right, and on that note, we say thank you very much, Doctor, for speaking to us here on Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you very much. It's a Have pleasure. A good day. Thank you, you too. Uh, that was the Executive Director of the UN Population Fund, Dr. Babatunde Osotimehin, talking to us from Cape Town, where he is attending the World Economic Forum on Africa. Thank you for listening to Africa Rise and Shine here on Channel Africa. Good morning. Let's get news from the world of economics now. Here's Tabisole Hoko. Leaders at the World Economic Forum in Cape Town, South Africa, say the United Nations should place gender issues, children's rights and the eradication of poverty in Africa by the year 2030 as its main SGD targets for the continent.
SDG's Sustainable Development Goals will replace the Millennium Development Goals when the countries discuss, declare and sign SDGs at the UN in New York later this year. The world is set to spend over $2 billion on these proposed targets for the next 15 years, UN's Executive Director for Women, Pumzilam Lambunmug, explains. ability to end poverty. So that is huge for Africa. Uh, if we can deliver that, because we need it more than anyone else. We also are the first generation with a serious possibility to move the gender agenda significantly and to address the underlying structural issues that make gender inequality recur. In the SDGs, for the first time, we have included things like unpaid care work. South Africa's Mineral Resources Minister Nwakura Makodi has appealed to mining houses to consult broadly in a bid to avoid massive retrenchments. The mining industry is expected to share the thousands of jobs, site and low commodity prices and high input costs as part of the reasons to lay off workers. Ramakodi spoke at the World Economic Forum on Africa in Cape Town that is deeply concerned about the industry. We need to realize that in creating value, we have to work first and that it is important that we all come from the same page about the realities of our industry and particularly of our mining industry. We're going through right now very low platinum prices where we are having to share jobs. We are talking to our employees and to our unions to limit job losses, but we have to serve the goose. And that means we may have to sacrifice people in order to make sure the majority of our employees have got jobs. Global Markets Research Sub-Saharan Africa Outlook released last week shows that strong growth in the constructions, mining and electricity sector will be experienced. The Rand Merchant Bank revised the growth estimates upwards to 4.9% this year. African governments should aim to increase power generation tenfold to give all their people access to electricity by 2030, an effort that would require a big increase in investment focused on renewable energy. Two in three Africans, around 621 million people, live without electricity, a situation worsening as the world population grows. The world's top 40 mining firms have cut costs by a combined 5% and capital spending by 20% last year as they grappled with a plunge in prices that drove their market value to a 10-year low. Auditing firm PricewaterhouseCoopers annual survey, which looks at the world's largest 40 miners by market capitalization, shows the combined equity value of the companies to drop by $156 billion last year to $791 billion. The U.S. dollar, 12.34 South African Rand, 9.74 Botswana, 7.21 Zambia, 6.5 British Pound, 9.1 Euro, Gold, 1.176 dollars, Platinum, 1.097 dollars an ounce, brand crude, 6.2 dollars, 1.7 cents a barrel. That's Channel Africa's economic update. Thank you, Tabi. So let's get uh, sports news now with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update, this hour starting off with athletics, U.S. sprinter Justin Gatlin smashed U.S. Usain's World's 100-meter meeting record at the Rome Diamond League meeting in Italy yesterday. 
Our correspondent Geshem Nyati reports. Unbeaten sprinter Justin Cutlin flew out from the starting block to win the 100 meters in 10.75 seconds. The American star hit his nose right in front after a few strides and won by a huge margin. Jimmy Vaikau of France was second, sharing the finishing time of 9.98 seconds with another American, Mike Rogers. Gatlin, who has not competed against Usain Bolt this year, has run the world fastest times this year in both the 100 and 200 meters. In the same 100-meter race yesterday, South Africa's new kid on the block, Akani Simbine, had a solid race finishing sixth position in a season's best of 10.24 seconds. Meanwhile, Kenya's Julius Yego finished second in the men's javelin in a new national record of 87.71 meters. Rocco Van Ruyen of South Africa finished in seventh position with a throw of 80.33 meters. And the world champion Mohamed Aman of Ethiopia beat Nigel Amos of Botswana into second place in the men's 800 meters. His winning time was a new world lead for the season. Gershom Nyati, Channel Africa Sports, London. In rugby, Springbok captain Jean Divilla says his enforced rest due to a career-threatening injury sustained during last year's end-of-the-year tour against Wales has given his body some time to recuperate and that he is well on his way to regaining full fitness ahead of this year's Rugby World Cup in England. Tivillas has miraculously made a full recovery from a knee injury that was meant to end his playing career and has done so ahead of the schedule and Tivillas says he's happy with where his progress is at at the moment. Yeah, I'm, uh, like I said, I'm getting there. Uh, you know, obviously it gave me the opportunity to, uh, to sort of look at you know, the, the, the body as a whole and, and just get everything in, in good nick and... Um, uh, and, and in shape for you know for the big stuff coming up later this year. So very happy with that, and uh, you know, yeah, on on track to be you know, to play rugby again this year. Divila says his motivation has always been to feature at another World Cup. The me- the mental part I think is very important. Um, luckily, from my point of view, you know, I've had I've had set- quite a few setbacks in my career, and, and I think from a mental point of view, I've learned through that and. And I've been able to to get stronger in that regard. So, um, you know, in a way, in a way, it's it's easier the fact that you've got such a big prize at the end of the the journey um, to work towards, and and um, it definitely motivates me and and drives me more to to do better and to get better soon. University of Johannesburg forward Andris Urshazen has been invited to join the Springbok Rugby Sevens team, the Blaise Borke, for a training camp in Stellenbosch, Cape Town, ahead of the European Tour to Italy and Switzerland next week. Urshazen, who has previously represented the Lions at junior level, described the training camp as one of his career highlights to date and says his ultimate aim is to become a permanent fixture in the South African side. We're wrapping up with uh, football news. The president of the Confederation of African Football, Kef Cameroon-born Issa Hayatou, says Seb Blatter will go into history as the man who revamped African football and brought it to glory. Channel Africa's Moki Kinzeka gathered the reactions of football fans in the Central African soccer nation, Cameroon, after Seb Blatter's resignation. One of the fans says Blatter did a good job by throwing in the towel. 
Well, with the corruption scandals around the world football governing body, maybe there are things that do not really sit down well with him. And so he thought that it is time for him to resign. And that given that some officials too are being investigated, and it is like he too is going to be investigated. He was re-elected. He himself best knows why he has decided to throw in the towel. And that's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Fikile. Let's recap our top stories from this hour. UN agency warns of looming food crisis in South Sudan. Kenyan minister appears in court over corruption charges. In economics, employers urged to pay male and female workers equally. And in sport, injured South African Springbok captain said to return next month. That's where we end this hour of Africa Rise and Shine. From myself, Asanda Matzaunyane, producer Pomodoro Magadza and the rest of the team, we say thank you for listening. For comments about our show, we'd love to hear from you. Please tweet us. Our handle is at RiseShineAfrica or email info at channelafrica.co.za. Taking us to the top of the hour, here's Zolanim Kiva with a song titled United States of Africa. <laughs> 